the end. The end. <laughs> we made it. It's like we've been binge watching the book of Leviticus um, all summer long, and now that's okay. There's another announcement there. It's got details in your in your page. Take a look at that. Um, but we, it's like we've been binge watching Leviticus um, throughout the summer, and we're coming to the final episode. It will not be a cliffhanger, though. It will be something that will, I think, impact you. There are some amazing stuff that we have learned, that I have learned uh, specifically, and I hope you've gotten something out of it, too. Uh, it's the first series of its length that I've taken on like this. And I think the Lord's done something good in my heart, even in my ways of preparing messages and stuff, um, to be able to, uh, just grow me in this season of Leviticus. So, uh, today's our final message in the series. And then next week I'm starting a series on the Holy Spirit. And I'm telling you, I'm I'm not going to give you a money back guarantee. Okay. But I'm telling you, I'm guaranteeing you that you are going to find out some details about the Holy Spirit that you probably never considered and may may have never paid attention to uh, that are in God's word. Um, So remember, if you're ever out of town or anything like that, you can always listen to our service after the fact. Uh, It gets posted on our website and it's available in iTunes and other places. Today, we are going to look at the fall feasts that are on God's calendar in the book of Leviticus in chapter 23. So if you have your Bible with you and you want to go to Leviticus 23, that's where we will uh, be. The key reason that the Israelites began to celebrate these feasts and did this on a regular basis was because they wanted to continue to remind themselves of the power and the greatness of God. God commanded that they observe these feasts. And over the last two weeks, we've talked about the springtime feasts. Today, we're going to talk about the fall feasts. But here's something that we've got to understand. We've got to understand when we look at God's calendar, and when we look at the book of Leviticus, we've got to understand that God is the one who's in control. He really is. And they, that might be something that causes us some anger, some stress from time to time. Uh, we may be disappointed in the timing of God. But here's the deal. We have to understand that God set a calendar in place for the Israelites. And we've said over the last several weeks, we're not saying as Christians we have to observe all of these feasts and fasts. But we are saying there's some spiritual significance to seeing that God had something, a thread, if you will, that he was weaving from the very beginning of time until that final day when we get to be with him forever. So that gives me hope. It stirs my heart up to know that God is in control. And so these people, the Israelite people needed to consistently remind themselves that God was still able to sustain them regardless of the season they found themselves in. So when they put it on the calendar, and I don't preach to people who aren't here, but if you're listening via audio later, The people put it on their calendar. That means they prioritized it. The same deal goes for us. Prioritizing time with God on the daily, not just the weekly. Prioritizing time with his family on the weekly, throughout the week. They made it a priority. It was something that they needed because they understood, regardless of the season, that they were either enjoying (laughs) or enduring. God was still in control. That's what real faith looks like. 
That really is. And we've got to understand that. When we talk about Hebrews and we read through the hall of faith that's found in Hebrews chapter 11, we understand that faith requires no sight. <laughs> we, can't, we can't go by what we see. Does that make sense? Are you getting that this morning? So if you're in a place of either enjoying this season or enduring this season, whatever season you find yourself in, I love what Paul says when he talks to the church and he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. When he says that in Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, he's not talking about running a race out there that he's going to get a trophy for. The preceding verses and the following verses actually say he's talking about being content. He was content whether he was shipwrecked or whether he was snake bitten or if people threw giant rocks at him to stone him and harm him or to chase him out of a city. He said, in all of those places, I've found the secret of contentedness is to believe and know that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And you can too. I'm preaching to myself this morning. Y'all just listen, okay? All right, the first feast that we're gonna look at today is found in chapter 23, Leviticus 23, verse 23 to 25, and it is called the Feast of Trumpets. Listen to what it says there. It says, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel saying, in the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall observe a day of solemn rest, a memorial that's proclaimed with the blast of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work and you shall present a food offering to the Lord. Look up at me for just a moment. I want you to understand and get this as we talk about the Feast of Trumpets today, that there was something very significant that was occurring on this day. In Exodus 19 and 20, you can just jot it down or look at it later, we read about God appearing on Mount Sinai. If you haven't been paying attention throughout this entire series, the background for Leviticus, this picture, is actually of that mountain. So they, they go to this mountain, Exodus 19 and 20 tell us, God appears to them there and he gives them a covenant. We call that covenant the Ten Commandments or other people call it the Mosaic Covenant, Mosaic being from Moses. So Moses is there and he receives the law from God. The giving of this covenant was announced to the people they didn't have PA systems and speakers and all that stuff. It was announced to people and got their attention because trumpets were blown in order for them to know something important was about to happen. Now, in the search of scripture, you can find three or four different main reasons why they, they blew trumpets. Most often, they were a ram's horn trumpet. It's called a shofar, kind of a curly horn that uh, you might have seen at some point. Um, they blew those trumpets for various reasons, one of which was to declare war. The other was to announce to the people that they were about to move. How do you get a million people without a text messaging system to start doing the same thing at the same time, except for to blow the sound of this trumpet? So they, they had the trumpets that would sound for various reasons. And specifically in Exodus 19 and 20, the reason why they're blown is for people to understand that this was the welcoming in of a covenant that they were entering into. So now every year at the Feast of Trumpets, those same trumpet blasts remind Israel or reminded them and still do today. They still do it in Jewish synagogues around the world. In fact, in just two short weeks, I think it's the second Monday from now, is the day of the Feast of Trumpets that we're talking about today on the Jewish calendar. 
They still do this today. And when they do this, it helps them to understand that God is a covenant making and a covenant keeping God. He's never broken a promise. Amen. He has never broken a promise. How many of you have ever broken a promise? How many of you have ever been really mad when somebody broke their promise to you? (laughs) How many of you have carried around hurt because of that? Absolutely. All of us have at some point. But here's the awesome. Literally, it's the capstone of who God is. Characteristically, it is that when he says something, he means something. And what he says, he will do. So he's been making covenants. He's been making promises that he's been following through with. That's the glory of this series is to realize that God had a thread that he's been weaving and he's not made a mistake. He's not made a mistake in your life either. Hear me with your spiritual ears this morning. So the feast of trumpets that we talk about today, it also starts the preparation for the day of atonement that happens eight days later on the Jewish calendar. And that's when the people would repent of their sins. It's when they would be atoned for and when they would, um, when they would go before the Lord's presence and essentially they would apologize and make right for the things that they had done wrong in breaking their end of the covenant. I asked you a moment ago about the relationships you've had, if you've had a promise broken or if you've been a promise breaker. When we talk about human to human, there can be hurt and healing that needs to take place. The same thing is true of God. He made a covenant with his people and we are to keep that covenant. So when we realize that we are covenant breakers, you don't have to say amen because it kind of stings when we realize we haven't kept up our end of the bargain with God, we can come to him and by his grace be sustained. It's miraculous. This is, this is the hope of the kingdom of God is that one day he will make all things new and restore every broken thing. It's amazing when we think about it. So I said uh, two weeks ago when we started this message, uh, this, the final messages about God's calendar, I said something to you and I, I told you about that. And I want you to go back and listen to it if you weren't here that day. It is that there is a sense in all of these feasts that there's this sense of an already but not yet fully fulfilled sort of dynamic. So that means that God put something in place. Some of them have been fulfilled. And we talked about those that have been fulfilled in Jesus, in his life, his death, his resurrection from the grave. And then we also understand that we are not yet where we are going to be. (laughs) We're still marching to a destination. That destination has not yet been made known to those who are living. That destination is heaven. So we're not yet there. Today, as we talk about the fall feasts, and these, these ideas need to be at the front of your mind, that God has fulfilled in some way when they are initiated, but more so than that, we're looking toward the future. I love what he says to the people of Israel in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. He says, I know the thoughts I have for you, says the Lord, thoughts for a future and a hope. They're good thoughts that he thinks towards us. I don't know why, because <laughs> I know I don't deserve them most days, but he said it in his mind, and because he's done that thing, he says, I've said this, and I will keep my word. So the Feast of Trumpets reminded them of God's covenant with them. Listen to what it says in Luke chapter 22, verse 20. 
Jesus says this. He says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So let me just explain something to you very quickly. A covenant in the Old Testament, you would have taken an animal as a sacrifice for the covenant. You would have literally split the carcass in half. You would have put one half on one side, one half on the other, and then you and the partner who's making the covenant with you would have walked in between that sacrifice and made the covenant. You would have said, basically, let this happen to me if I break my word in this promise. And so there was this understanding with the people of God that this is what God was doing with them. Except for Hebrews tells us this about the covenant that God has made. It says that he couldn't enter into it with any other fallible source like us. That he had to literally swear by himself, put it on God, amen, that it was going to happen. There was no other trustworthy source to make this promise by except for by himself. And now Jesus arrives on the scene. He's lived a sinless life. He's about to be carried to death. He's celebrating the Jewish Passover feast. And now he's sharing a cup of wine with them at the dinner table. And he says, this is the new covenant in my blood. So see the connecting parts. And I'm thankful that God has given us a new covenant that's available to each one of us. And we actually, as believers celebrate the Feast of Trumpets, if you want to think about it like that, every time we take communion. Because we're celebrating the covenant that God made and we're looking forward to the day that it's already here, I'm already a believer, but one day I shall and all of us will, who are believers, be saved forever. So it's something really important for us to think about. The Apostle Paul tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 52, He says this about our future hope. He says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last, say that word, trumpet. So they've been blowing trumpets for thousands of years to announce different things. And Paul, with the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, writes to the church and says, one day you will hear the last trumpet sound. And that trumpet will be the sound that will lead us. It says here, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised, we could say eternally, imperishable, and we shall all be changed. Those who are believers will all be changed. We have a hope that we're still looking forward to. That is that we will one day be reunited reunited with those who have gone on before us who now live in God's presence There will be no reunion, sadly, for those who are not in God's presence. We need to think about that and let that really charge up our heart when we're talking to people in our neighborhood, when we're talking to our classmates and our friends, our bosses, our professors. We need to think about the fact that we are the hope of the world. With Christ's help, we are. And I want to see everybody leave with me. (laughs) I don't want to leave anybody behind. Brighton gave me a hug this morning. She said, Daddy, can I have a hug? She's giving me like six today. It's a great feeling when they do that lovingly, okay? And she said, can I have a hug? And I said, sure. And she said, I don't know what I would do if I didn't have your hug. And I thought to myself, you should say, aw, okay? And I thought to myself, I thought to myself in that moment, like not to be morbid or anything, but I, I said this out loud. I said, I'll hug you till the day you die. 
No, till the day I die is what I said. I'll hug you till the day I die. And she said, Daddy, don't talk like that. I said, but listen, baby, I'll be the first one you see when you get to heaven because I'll be waiting for a hug. And I thought to myself, we've got to let people know that that hope is there, that death is not the the victory that the enemy wants it to be because Christ has conquered it all, amen? And that one day we will be reunited with those who have gone on before. So there will come a day, and there's an old song, I kept singing it all week long, what a day, what a glorious day that will be when my Jesus I shall see. Now, people disregard Revelation, the book of Revelation. It's been up in contention for quite some time, and people discuss whether it was present-day stuff, future-day stuff. It's kind of weird and wacky, and if you've ever tried to read through it, you might have just scrapped it and said, well, but listen to me. At the end of the book, if you want to skip all the weird stuff, just go to chapter 19 or 20 and start reading about the hope we have. It says that we'll be there together celebrating. We'll be eating. God will make dinner for you and for I, and we'll be celebrating. We'll be experiencing his presence forever. And it says in that moment, we will see him for all that he is. We'll know that that's the one who saved us. I'm filled with hope. You ought to be too, especially if we're facing a season that we're enduring rather than enjoying. That there is hope and hope needs to be instilled in our soul. How can you get hope? Let me share with you a couple things. I think one of the things is keep your mind on the right thing. (laughs) Keep your mind on the right thing. Think about the hope that Jesus offers you. Think about the things that he's done in the past. Celebrate those things, just like we're talking about God's calendar. Celebrate those things. Even the hard things have taught you something. Amen? And so celebrate the things that you've experienced and say, God, I know you came through before. I know you're going to come through again. A couple weeks back in July, we talked about the Day of Atonement. And so we're going to skip over that part in Leviticus 23. If you want to listen to that message, it's online. But I want to highlight this last feast. And it is the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. Now, you may be remembering towards the beginning of our series, we talked about how God was traveling with the children of Israel throughout their days in the the wilderness. And they set up something called the tabernacle. It was the house of God. It was a tent, a glorified tent that had to be very, very clean. And it had to be God's uh, dwelling place. Now, the people of Israel actually have something on their calendar that they, we would call the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. We could also say tents. Look at verse 33 in chapter 23. It says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, On the fifteenth day of this seventh month, and for seven days, is the Feast of Booths, or Tabernacles, to the Lord. Jump down to verse 42. It says, this is what they did during the feast. It says, you shall live, dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel to dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord, your God. I have Jewish friends to this day. We call them Messianic Christians. They are those who are Jewish in heritage and culture, but they accept Jesus as their Messiah and Savior. And they still do this same thing today. 
during the Feast of Tabernacles and Booths, if you go to a Jewish neighborhood, and Orthodox Jews still keep this, obviously, but those who believe in Jesus have a different understanding of it altogether. They actually set up shelters in the backyard. And I've actually been inside of one. They're kind of cool. They get decorated. The kids get into the process. They decorate it with fruit and all this kind of stuff. And they live out there. Some of the most Orthodox would live there day and night throughout the entire series of seven days. Others would just go out there for a meal. They would talk through scripture and remind themselves of what God did for the children of Israel back then. And then they would thank him for his provision. It's not that God is saying, yeah, I made y'all live in tents. So I want you to live in a tent for seven days. It's that I provided for you when you thought there was no hope left. I gave you hope. I watched over you almost like a mother hen. It it actually compares God, a prophet in the Old Testament compares God to a, a mother hen gathering her chicks under her wings. Think about what the psalmist said when he said, you've hidden me under your wing of protection. So the people of Israel had this understanding that God had not only set them free, but as he was bringing them to the destination, he provided for them. This is, this is really important. Jews to this day actually call this feast the season of our joy. You can talk to any Jew, Orthodox, or a believing Jew, one who believes in Jesus, and they've got another name that they give it, which is the season of our joy. They have a reason to remember their deliverance. The question is, do you? <laughs> if, we're, if we're looking at this, we do too. God set us free, not from a physical slavery, but from a spiritual slavery. We've got a reason to celebrate Now, it may have been a 100 years ago for some of us, but we've got to keep reminding ourselves of the faithfulness of God to keep his promise. So there it is again, already, but not yet. God set the Israelites free from slavery in Egypt, and then he fulfills the feast when Jesus provided freedom for us from spiritual slavery for any and all who choose it. Now, at the risk of sounding like an infomercial, I'm going to say this. But wait, there's more, okay? There are three main rituals that happen during the Feast of Booths that are really, really amazing. And I've got to show them to you. The first ritual is called rejoicing at the place of water drawing. Now listen to me. During this feast, water was to be drawn out of the Siloam Spring. If you look in scripture, you can find that in Jerusalem every day during the feast. Then it was brought to the temple and the priest made libation or drinks of the water and offered it to those who were there. It was, it was a huge ceremony that they called the pouring of water ceremony. Okay. Doesn't sound, but it tells you what they're about to do, right? I'm going to pour some water out because they collected it from this very special place. The origins of this practice are found back in Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3, and it says this, with joy you shall draw water out of the wells of salvation. The spring that fed this place in Jerusalem was said to contain, listen to me, living water. 
They understood, they called it living water because it was fresh water. It was not tainted. It didn't go through the cisterns and through all the other systems that they had. It didn't do that. It wasn't tainted by anything else. It was living fresh water. Jesus deliberately, while he's celebrating the Feast of Booths, stands in a certain place in the temple. In John chapter 7, verse 37, it says this, on the last day of the feast, talking about the great day, Jesus stands up and cries out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he had said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were yet to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus had not been yet glorified. So in speaking of this living water, Jesus draws this connection for the people in the temple that day between the spiritual gift of the Holy Spirit that he would give and the water that they could drink from this spring. And he is telling them that with the wells of salvation that's mentioned in Isaiah, he's telling them, if you take this into you, you'll have so much of it, you'll give it away to others. You will become a spring of living water. I thought about that little kid song we sang so many years ago, spring up a well inside my soul. When I take in what he has to offer and give me, then I understand that he is truly the living water and I can be too. Not in some weird God sense of me becoming a little God but, or deity, but me in the sense of being the place that people can draw from and there can be life. I love the idea of having a life-giving church. That's what we strive to do. That's why we hate gossip and hate contention and hate all that stuff because we hate it with a passion because we want everybody who comes to this place to rejoice when they receive that living water. We want them to live a life that's healthy after that, spiritually speaking. Um, Number two, the second ritual is this. It's illumination. Illumination. Okay, I was thinking, I was thinking of it. Okay, some of you parents and maybe uh, kids might get that. Anyway, illumination is the second part of this ritual that they celebrate during the Feast of Booths. So when the temple was still standing, these giant candlesticks, we, we could call them candelabras if you've ever seen one. It's got different branches that come out. They had gigantic ones that they would set on the temple, on the temple court, and it would illuminate the city below. They would come and they would bring in oil and they would pour it into the basin and they would have these wicks that would be lit and that fire would light up literally the city below. It was set in the outer courtyard. The lighting of these lamps caused Israel to remember. I want you to think about it like an ancient Israelite would have. If I lived in the city of Jerusalem and I looked up that night to see them lighting those lamps, I would have thought to myself back to the stories that my grandmother or grandfather told me about how God led us And there was a sense of his presence through fire in the wilderness. I would have seen that big, what looks like a column or whatever you might want to imagine it to be, a big big stream of light coming up from the presence of God, from the house of God. I would have known that as an ancient Israelite and seen that. But think a little deeper about this because Jesus calls himself the light of the world. 
The symbolism can't be overlooked with the light of the world statement that he makes and with the living water statement. There's so much rich history there for a person who is Jewish to understand and a theological background for them to say, oh, this, wait, this is of God. Throughout every piece of this, we would have to be blind not to see it. So here's what's significant. Jesus stands in the temple You can look at the scripture verses in John chapter 9 and following. He stands in the temple and he declares to be the light of the world. He was making a radical statement in this place because he was standing there in conjunction with the Feast of Tabernacles and saying, the light that we do during this ceremony, I am that light. I'm that light source. It was kind of like saying, I am that pillar of fire that traveled with the people of Israel. But wait, there's more. Listen to me, in Revelation, it says that when we get to that great day in that city where we will be with God forever, in Revelation 22, verse 5, it says, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they, they will reign forever and ever We've got jobs to do. Heaven's not just sitting on a cloud learning to play the harp, okay? There's going to be stuff to do. It says that we are going to reign with him forever. And it says there's going to be no need for a sun and no need for any electricity for light because he is our light. It's harder to, it's, it's hard to imagine a clearer claim to deity that Jesus makes than when he's standing in the temple and he says that he is the light of the world. Listen to what it says. We had it on the screen right there. John nine, verse five. He says, as long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. So his body's no longer here in the world, but his light still remains in this world because he's illuminating the world around you because of the light you have inside of you. This isn't some new age teaching, okay? The light that shines inside. Listen, we're talking about I gave my life to God and he wants all of it. He's illuminated my life and he wants me to share that light with those around me. So here's the tough question. Are you shining his light in your world? Are you impacting your neighbors. I began to think about these questions that just rolled around in my head this week. Am I illuminating the lives of others? What does the impact around me look like? Something for all of us to think about and maybe be concerned about. Maybe it's something that we can go to the Lord and say, you know what, Lord, we've been kind of (laughs) dim. I know some dim-witted people, but we've been dim with our light recently and, and just come to him and fall on his grace and say, God, would you help me? You could even say words like this. I'm an introvert. It's hard for me to connect with people. God, would you, would you help me? The Bible actually says that the Holy Spirit, I don't want to jump into next week's message, but I'm telling you, it says this, the Holy Spirit will help you and even give you the words to say because you're saying them for him. He doesn't want you to look like a fool either. Amen? (laughs) So pray that you got the right words when you go to share your light. And let me just debunk this thing, and we'll go to the third thing. Let me debunk this thought. Don't live your light in silence. God gave you a mouth. He expects you to use it. 
Enough said? I'm moving along. Number three is the ritual of the building of the booth or the tabernacle. Now this happens during the Feast of Booths and the booth, it's, you could read a long description in, in Leviticus chapter 23 about what it should have and what it shouldn't have. Essentially, it should be a shelter, but there was a certain idea that you could allow the light in from the outside or the stars in, but you wouldn't have big enough holes where you'd get rained on. You'd have all this different stuff and you couldn't make it feel just like the comforts of home because it's not home. We are living in a temporary home, but we have to remind ourselves of that because we can get off track and think to ourselves that this place is our final place and it's not. So we've got to understand this. When they built this booth, it was the whole family. They all got out and did it. Imagine, if you will, the horns sounding, saying, we're moving. They're looking at the temple being, or the tabernacle being broken down so that they can pack it away. They're seeing that God's presence is moving through the wilderness. And now you've got to get 1 million people to pack their stuff up so they can all start walking the same direction. So the whole family was part. The whole family had chores. I talked to my students this week and I asked them, I said, how many of you get paid to do chores in your house? And, and some of them raised their hands. Some of them were like, man, I wish I was in your family because they were like, no, I don't get paid to do chores. And then I asked this question and I said, how many of you don't do any chores? You know what? I felt like smacking some kids this week. There were hands up in every one of my classes that said that they don't do chores. Say, Wow. Okay, and I'll move on. I was just like, oh my word, you've got some amazing parents, but they're kind of on the wrong path if they're doing all the work. That's what I'm telling you. You ought to be here for the parenting small group. It's going to be good. It's going to be helping you, mama and daddy. So they got them all together and they all built the booth. They all built this tabernacle, this shelter, and it reminded them of the days that they spent in the wilderness. As I said before a minute ago, the modern Jews still do this today and even those who believe in Jesus. But there's a connection not to be missed in this as well. Listen to what John chapter 1 verse 14 says. It says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word translated there, dwelt, is the same understanding that it came temporarily to dwell with us for a moment in time, yet to have an eternal impact. So God, in his awesome calendar and his awesome plan, set it up so that Jesus would come and tabernacle or set up a booth here in our place, and he did so in a way that was not glorious, Think about it. Born and put in a manger, in a stable, in a place that was not fit for a king or the son of a king. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Listen to what it says in Revelation chapter 21. I'll invite the worship team to come up at this point. At the end of our service, what we do is a worship encore. That's what we call it. It's just, it's one more song. It's a time for us to connect with the Lord. It's a time for you to receive prayer. If you need prayer for any reason, we want to pray for you. It's, it's a moment for us to respond to the message. And maybe if it's you today and you, you say there's some 
light that's kind of growing dim in my heart towards the Lord or towards someone. Maybe you need that light to be rekindled. Maybe it's something that you understood through the message that the Holy Spirit spoke to you. But I want to share with you what it says in Revelation chapter 21 about our final, our final destination. It says this in verse 3, And I heard a loud voice. The, the apostle John is there. He is hearing and seeing things in the throne room of God. He says, I heard a loud voice from the throne say, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Verse 4 gives us hope and it says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain for the former things have passed away and he he who is seated on the throne in verse 5 says this listen to what he says behold I am making all things new the first covenant promise that God makes to people on this planet and what he says to the people that he says I want you to be my people his words can echo throughout every page and every story those original words that were spoken back then I will be their God and they will be my people he's experiencing an already but not yet fulfilled sort of thing on his calendar because he's waiting for all of us to be together He's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. I don't know what those tears are going to be of. Are they going to be tears of joy? Will some be of sadness because we'll recognize that some are not there? God says there'll be tears, but they'll be wiped away in his presence. He'll wipe away pain. Death will be no more. And what will be with him forever will be those who are his, his kids. There's a final destination for each and every one of us that waits on the other side of this temporary tabernacle and booth and home that we live in now. And this is our great hope. This is why we talk. Some people get scared when you talk about the end of time and you talk about all the other weird stuff and battles and Armageddon and all of these things. They get weirded out about that. But there's something that's got to be said and spoken about, the hope that we have. So as the Israelites and the Jews still today call it the season of great joy, I would say that we as believers will have joy forevermore in his presence. In fact, the psalmist says that too. It's so hard not to connect back and forth throughout all of the places in scripture when you hear him say, in your presence there is fullness of joy and peace forevermore. And his heart's cry is, Lord, get me there. Let me be in your presence. The same thing is true of us here and now that we can experience his joy and his peace. But one day, we shall see it fulfilled in a way we, we may never have even imagined. So God is with us now, and we will be with him one day in all his glory. I want you to stand with me. I hope, like, like me, you could say, I've got something out of the book of Leviticus, <laughs> finally. I got something out of this book. But not just that today. I really hope that you've thought through, even if it's the statement about God's timing, I hope that you allow the Holy Spirit to minister to your heart. Today, I want to give you the opportunity, if you say in this room today, Pastor, 
I do not have the light of the world inside of me. I'm not living for him. Maybe you said a prayer, walked an aisle years ago, but you're not doing the things that are required of those who love him. You're not acting like his kid. If that's you, I want you to slip up your hand wherever you are today. Anybody here? You say, pastor, that's me. I believe that in the presence of God, God can restore and he can heal and he can change. He can remove that stuff, those stumbling blocks and things that have been in our way. And he can help us to recognize how dirty and filthy we really are and how much in need we really, really are. So if we've been letting him live inside of us like the people in the Israelite days did with the Feast of Booths, then maybe you say, you know, my light's really dim these days, Pastor. I've lost the joy of my salvation. I've I've lost something in my heart, in God, and I, I'm not where I should be. Would you just lift up your hand right now? You say, Pastor, you're not causing people to close their eyes. No, just lift it up and just say, God, that's me today. There are hands up today. I don't know what the Holy Spirit may have spoken to you, but I know what he spoke to me in the preparation of this message. And I'm gonna pray today for myself, for what he's dealt with me about the season that I'm in, being content with whatever it is that I find myself in, because I have too much to remember about how good he's been that should cloud out the ideas of the stuff that stresses me out today because he has been so, so faithful. God, church, would you just lift your hands today? You might not be comfortable with it, but (laughs) he is. Lord, we surrender. God, our hearts, we give to you today, God. Lord, we're so thankful. God, forgive us for the times where we've been ungrateful little snots. The times just like we don't like about our own kids or grandkids when they're not thankful. Lord, would you forgive us for failing to remember your faithfulness? And Lord, today, would you help us to move forward with the sound of the trumpet and the understanding in our heart and our spirit that, Lord, what you've done has been amazing. And Lord, what you've planned to do in the future is amazing yet. So God, help us to get to that place. With your hands up, I just pray. Holy Spirit, speak to every heart today. In the name of Jesus, amen. As the worship team sings, I'll invite you to come to a prayer station if you want prayer for any reason. It doesn't matter what it is. We also have prayer request cards that are in the seat backs there. And they'll lead this last song of worship and we'll be dismissed. But Meg will go to this station over here and I'll be here. And I want to pray for you today. If you've responded to the message, if you've got an issue at work, in your health, some crisis you're facing, we want to pray with you today. So go ahead and move out while they begin to worship.